Here's the million dollar question. How do men like us reach our full potential and grow into the men we dream of being while taking care of our responsibilities, working, being good husbands, fathers, and still take care of ourselves? That's the question, and this podcast will help you with those answers. My name is Brent, and welcome to the Fallible Man Podcast. Hey guys, thanks for joining us. And today we're talking to coach, creator, and jack of all trades, Eric Tiplitz. We'll see if I blew that one entirely. You know how I am with names. We're going to spend some time digging into change, progress, and personal growth. Eric, welcome to the Fallible Man Podcast. Thanks so much, Brent. Teplitz is how I say it, but you were pretty close. I, I listened to you say it on your videos a couple of times <laughs> just to try and cheat because, oh, I'm, I'm going to blow that. I know. So, Eric, I am uh, I'm a horrible podcast host because I don't do big introductions for my guests because I get to look up and research my guests, but I can look at all your achievements, accolades. That doesn't tell our listeners anything. So my first question is always this is, Eric, tell us exactly who Eric Teplitz is. Eric Teplitz, to use the third person, is a work in progress and is most definitely uh, a fellow fallible man. I love the whole premise of fallible man. And actually, I see it as a positive thing. If we were if we were infallible already, where is the growth? Where is the experience? What is the point? So fallibility is actually an asset because it provides opportunities for growth. And that's been the, the story of my life, really, is just learning by doing, failing, modifying, and figuring out who I am. I'm still doing that. I'm still figuring that out. Looking, and it's exciting. Look, looking into you before the show, you have certainly tried more than a few things. How many Ironmans have you done? Just specifically Iron Man races three. It took me three before I completed one. Most that, people that never do one, a, so that's... Yeah, that was a really unexpected part of my journey. I was never particularly athletic growing up, and it was something that I got captured my interest in a very gradual and like it snuck up on me kind of way. It was a very, if you would have told me even just several years before that it would be something I would do, I would have laughed because I wouldn't have even had any interest in it. But I love that. That's the thing that's so incredible about life is if you have a sense of curiosity, you don't know where things are going to lead and where things are going to take you. So with the Ironman specifically, that journey started. I have a background, a music background that you probably read about. I did. And for many years, I taught guitar lessons. And I remember I had this one guitar student who was a triathlete. And he would tell me about all the crazy stuff that he would do in between our lessons. And I would listen with fascination, but also, this guy's crazy. Like, <laughs> why would someone do this? But it was fascinating. And he was totally into it. And just because of my curiosity, which I think is, has been a consistent trait throughout my life, I'm naturally interested in what makes people tick. And he could see that I was maybe not interested in doing this myself, but he could, he appreciated my interest and curiosity about it. And he gave me, he said, here's on a single sheet of paper, it was a 12 week training regimen for a short course triathlon. And he said, here, take a look at it, see what you think. And I kept it and it was in a storage box for years. Okay. This is back in Philadelphia. I then move out to Los Angeles and living out in LA, you have this incredible climate, year round warm temperatures. You have a culture of people who are very uh, fitness and health conscious. And there's always people running, 
rollerblading, biking by the beach and whatnot. And I thought what would be really fun would be just to get a mountain bike and ride a bike again, which is something I hadn't done since I was probably a teenager delivering newspapers. So I bought a mountain bike and I would just go for rides from my apartment to the beach. And it was wonderful. I just loved it. It's so uh, exhilarating just being on a bike outside. And I thought about this guitar student from several years back. And I thought, let me dig up that piece of paper he gave me. And sure enough, I found it. I dug it out. And I looked at the training involved for doing a short course triathlon. And I thought, this seems doable. By that point, the bike was no problem. And I thought the running, the distances were manageable enough. Swimming was going to be the big sort of uh, learning curve for me. Swimming but, gets everybody. Yeah, it's it can be the most intimidating part for a lot of people that get into triathlon. And then if you're like me, it, it becomes maybe your favorite part in the end. But it was pretty funny. I, I trained very... Um, naively, I would say. I followed his, the program. I signed up for a race. It was in 2003. It was the Malibu Triathlon. Beautiful, spectacular, unbelievable scenery, right? Malibu. Oh, yeah. And the, the distances of the race seemed very manageable. It was a half-mile swim, 18-mile bike, four-mile run. Okay. So I, I knew I could handle the bike and the run. And I did these, what are called bricks, train part of... Uh, it's a part of your training where you don't just train in the individual sport, but you tr you practice transitioning from a bike to a run. So you'll do X number of miles on a bike, and then you'll go for a run right afterwards so that you can get used to the experience of having your legs transition from like one rubber. to the other. Yeah, exactly. So I would do these brick trainings and stuff. And all that I did for the swim was I would go to my local pool and I would do their lap swim. And I was really not a good swimmer. To the point where I would basically go with the width of a pool, not even the length of a pool, but the width of a pool. And by the time I got to the edge, I would have to catch my breath, stop and catch my breath, and then do the next one. But I didn't care about my time. I wasn't looking at this as a competitive thing. I was just looking at a, this is a fascinating thing to try. I wonder if I can do it. And I just want to be able to finish it. I just want to be able to get through it. So this is the hilarious part is, I didn't even really know how to do a good front crawl. So I would, the stroke that I was most comfortable with was the side stroke of all things, which is fine in the pool. But a week before the race, they have this swim clinic at the beach, at Zuma Beach. And some random guy sees me and he looks at me and I'm just wearing my bathing suit. I've been doing this in the pool. And he says, you are going to get a wetsuit for the race, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, of course. I'm thinking, I, I why would I do that? Like, why would, yeah. And of course, I realized how incredibly cold the water was in the ocean, for one thing. But I, the bigger wake-up call was I started doing my side stroke and realized that in the ocean, you don't get anywhere. There, The waves are, it's just too much. Like, you're not actually, it's not just that it's going to slow you down. It's just you're not going to be able to actually make any real progress on the course doing the side stroke. And this was a week before the race. And I thought, oh man, like I need to figure something out fast. And I got back into the pool and started like doing a freestyle and cramped up real bad. My legs seized up and I thought, oh no, if this happens in the ocean, what am I gonna do? But for whatever reason, I still went. I showed up and I was very intimidated about this. So you get there, it's early in the morning. You can't even see, it's all darkness. It's just this black 
see and you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to go in that like by choice and it's terrifying. Honestly, I'd signed up for it. I had trained. I thought I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And when I started the swim, the gun goes off and, and they send you off in waves at a time. So there's five minutes in between each wave that goes out. And I think I was in the first wave because I, I was a mountain bike participant which meant that I was doing the bike course using a mountain bike, which is slower than people that are more serious and trying to race for, you know, good times. And um, I was trying to race for a good time as in a good experience, not a good time as in like trying to win. <laughs> so I start, I go into the ocean, I start doing my pathetic version of a freestyle swim. And I have this moment of near panic. I have this moment of, Oh my God, should I be doing this? Is this a terrible idea? And it only lasted really a very short time, seconds. And then I, I looked around and I saw they've got these lifeguards, these lifeguards that are monitoring the course. And it's like the best in the world, these incredibly well-prepared, trained Malibu lifeguards. And if you ever run into trouble, you're told like, just put your hand up and they'll come to your aid. And so in literally like a split second and split second of time, I went from going, am I out of my mind? Should I, should I be doing this to thinking, yeah, you'll be all right. You're okay. Keep going. <laughs> and I did. And I'm telling you, I recount this story on my blog. I have a blog post called for me, it all started with the NMT, which stands for Nautica Malibu Triathlon. And I tell the story in detail about when you swim, you're supposed to be horizontal in the water. I was basically vertical with my head hanging out of the water and like paddling forward, trying to, to make progress. And what would happen is the next wave of swimmers would come rushing over me, passing me. And it was sometimes thrashing as they're going. And then finally, they would all be ahead of me. I'd be like, okay, I can breathe now. I just concentrate on what I'm doing. And then the next wave would come and overpower me. And it was pretty hilarious. But the, the bottom line is you go around these buoys. And when I finally pat, made my way around the final buoy and I could see the shoreline, I thought, I'm going to live. I'm going <laughs> to live. Like, I'm going to make it. And, and that's and I was jubilant. I got this big like ovation from the people on the beach that were watching. And they probably didn't realize that I was in the first swim wave. <laughs> but or I maybe they were so glad you survived. They're cheering you on. They're cheering everyone on. The spirit is so incredibly uh, positive. So I knew that once I had gotten through, the, literally survived the swim, I knew I would be able to handle the rest. And I did. And But I really didn't think after doing that, it, it was really just in my mind, just a, an experience that I wanted to have. And I didn't think it would go any further than that. But what happens is you get sucked into this. It's such an incredible experience. And it's so affirming. And it's so empowering. And it's so it feels so great that you start wondering, huh, okay, I did that. What else can I do? What more can I do? And that's, that was the slippery slope, as it were, to eventually a path that eventually led to the Ironman, which honestly, if you had asked me, I would have said, no way would I even consider that's insane. And it's, if you find that insanity is relative, and as you step into that world of people that do this kind of stuff, you really get an appreciation for just how relative things are. But the thing that the commonality among all the people doing this is that they're they're challenging themselves and they're striving to improve themselves. 
And that's in line with your motto, I know, right? About act today in a way that would make you proud. I'm butchering it, your words, but basically <laughs> like act in a way that's going to make you proud of yourself tomorrow. Act in a way today that makes you proud of yourself tomorrow. And that really, when I did this first event, I saw guys getting out. I saw this one guy get out of the, the water and then put on his two prosthetic legs. Blew my mind. There was an athlete who was blind and on the bike, he was riding tandem. So some of the first person in front of him was basically guiding him, but he was pedaling, pedaling. And I was just like, wow, you know what? There's just, there's no excuse for an able-bodied person. Like you're watching these people. It's so inspiring. And, and you're watching them do things that a lot of us able-bodied people wouldn't consider doing. And it's just very inspiring. So I gradually, bit by bit, I thought that even after having done that, I thought that was one thing is course triathlon, but you'd have to hate yourself to do a marathon. Why anyone would do that voluntarily literally was beyond my ability to comprehend. That just sounded like torture and punishment and pain. And then it wasn't too long before I got curious and I was in the bookstore and picked up this book called The Non-Runner's Marathon Trainer. And in that book, I read the first chapter and they, the authors, it's three authors, they basically say, if you do the things that we tell you to do, if you follow this program, you will finish a marathon. And I was, I believed it. I was like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do it. And I, so I went home and signed up for the LA Marathon and it was just this progression of experience. Every single race experience that I had was so positive, so incredibly positive. And the training itself was so incredibly positive because you, you, it's this cycle of pushing yourself, stretching yourself, impressing yourself. You end up doing things you didn't think you were capable of, which is extremely empowering. Plus, the exercise naturally feels great. You, you've got your endorphins going. It's, it, you've got the sunshine on you if you live in L.A. <laughs> uh, but even in, in bad weather, there's so many lessons and the psychological, the mental slash psychological component of training is just as amazing and important as the physical aspect. And that also was really intriguing to me. I was in, uh, enjoying, I was a swimmer in high school, me and all my siblings huh? competitively swam and, dove, and I dove in high school as well. And you were saying that you were training in a pool and I thought, you're going to do an open water swim and you're <laughs> only training, you're going to die. Just you <laughs> grew up playing on the coast. Sometimes I, not even taking me your friend. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up, you know, doing swimming in the open ocean and also swimming in the pool for competitions and stuff. And those are two very different things. No, I, I get it entirely. I do obstacle course events like Spartan and Tough Mudder. Yeah. And I'm not competitive. Okay. I don't even pretend I am. I've got enough injuries. Mm -hmm. I just enjoy doing it. It gets me out from behind my desk and stuff like that. But my very first one, a uh, guy I work with, happened to have a screensaver that had this really cool shot on it. And I asked him about it. It was his daughter. Him and his daughter did it. Wow. And I was like, so he starts telling me about it. So then I started looking at YouTube videos. I'm like, oh, this looks like fun. I'm tired of being stuck behind a desk. Let's go do something cool. I signed up with three weeks. You know, I'm a gym guy. Like I, I lift heavy, more heavy kind of lifting and sort of like endurance training and stuff like that. Distance is not my friend. Strong as an ox, but not really endurance kind of stuff. And so I thought, yeah, I'll walk it. I know I can't run the whole thing, but I just want to go do it. Man, I crossed that finish line. I felt amazing. I looked, looking at the pictures from that very first race, I look like I'm about to die. In fact, <laughs> I took, uh, I don't know much about Tough Mudders. They have some pretty unique obstacles, including one called shock therapy. 
and it is a 30 foot long trellis they build with hundreds of wires hanging down with a thousand volts spread across them oh my god and you never know which wire is actually going to hit you as far as which one is carrying a charge because it pulses and there are hay bales and mud in the bottom of it and they're all different links to make sure you can't miss them and i got two steps from the end and took a hot wire right to the soft spot of my head oh my goodness my jaw snapped shut Everything went black. I hit the ground and slid the remaining three feet out of the obstacle on my knees. I have a permanent scar on my ankle from the very first race I did where the huh. shell in the mud cut my ankle besides my knees as I slid across the line. And then I regained consciousness and stumbled my feet and then stumbled the next 20 feet across the finish line. I can't even imagine the lawyers involved in, in managing these races. You, like, yeah, yeah. You sign a death waiver, literally. In fact, they have a sign usually somewhere on the course that reminds you, says, remember, you signed a death waiver for this. About halfway through when you're starting to question your life see, choices. Now, now, your story makes my, mine sound perfectly reasonable. Right. You know, what it, I did. So it, the relativity of these things. I also find it really interesting that your background is swimming. So for you, that would have been the least of your concerns probably. Oh, yeah. These no, the, the distance of running. Was I was the exact opposite approach from you. For me, it was all, all about building endurance. And there are people that train for these things. And there's a specific way to train for speed. I didn't do that. For me, it was the one thing that we do have in common that in terms of the our approaches is that we're but I'm not competitive either. I was only competitive if you want to use that word with myself. Right. To try to see if I could better my get, get to a personal best and improve my myself. But unlike a lot of people that I know doing that do these things, I genuinely was not I get inspired by the people when you're in a race and people are pushing themselves and you do get bursts of inspiration. But I for me, the motivation was never, I want to beat this guy, or I want to beat my friend, or I want to, I want to, it was never the competitive um, spirit, which I know is extremely motivating for some people. So it, it's all about figuring out what motivates you and how you're wired. And that's another thing that has always fascinated me is just human motivation and how to understand what motivates you specifically, and then put that wisdom put that knowledge into actual use, because then it becomes wisdom if you know how to motivate yourself. So all of this, all of these races and endurance sport activities really appealed to that aspect of me that is fascinated by human potential, and even just understanding how to tap into my own resources and motivation. And we're going to keep going on those thoughts. But I got to ask you the important question of the show. What is your favorite ice cream? That is like everything else subject to change. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. I go through phases. We we have the artisan ice cream shops out here in LA and they're, they're elsewhere too. There are chains. There's Jenny's, J-E-N-I, Jenny's. There's one called Salt and Straw. But I would say my favorite, and I, can't, I don't know about flavor. I'll tell you what, I'll answer your question. To answer your question, there's an Indian restaurant of all things mm -hmm. that that near where I live and they make their own ice cream there. And there they have ginger as a flavor, mm -hmm. pistachio and mango. And for me, the ginger and the pistachio are outstanding. Absolutely, the te the texture is perfect, and it's sweet, but it's not too sweet. It's perfect, so that would be my favorite at the moment. <laughs> I think I think I've had a mango at an Indian restaurant before. Yeah, that they happen to have. My wife likes green tea at the Thai restaurants. She likes the green. Uh, yeah. Now it's I ask all my guests just because ice cream 
It's universal and it's very individual. Yeah. I've heard of some amazing things I've never even heard of before. I don't know what a Jenny's is. We don't, Jenny, yeah. Uh, we don't yeah, have those it's, a, it's a chain. And again, there's artisan, very, mm -hmm. you know, a little pricey, but for of their flavors, they have one that is something, I don't remember if I can get the name exactly right, but it's basically peanut butter with chocolate specks in it. And that's my favorite flavor of theirs. It's fantastic. You can I, really can't go wrong with chocolate and peanut butter. I had one <laughs> guest from Sydney tell me about something that's like a burnt fig and almond or something wow. that is unique to a, a chef over there. Hmm. So yeah, you get these really individual answers. Now, I've done a lot of digging and uh, since you and I started talking. And I've got to ask, actually, I'm really excited about this because... I, I am, this is so not me. So I always want to talk to somebody who actually does this. I'm not a journaling guy. And ah. from doing my research, you obviously are a journaling person. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of your blogs talks specifically about transformational journey and journaling. And you, I know you wrote in a collective workbook on journaling. Yeah, right. In fact, that the book that you're referring to is called transformational journaling. And it's, it's, geared towards therapists and coaches, and it says, and their clients. But really, it can be used by anyone that is curious about different approaches to journaling. But each contributing author, of which I am one, are is a therapist and or coach of some sort. Okay. So you you are a regular journaler. I, I read said some of your blog on it. And I know you went through a couple of years where it was up or down, and you weren't real consistent. And then you got more purposeful and intentful about it. And I've never been a journaling guy. I've tried it a couple of times and, mm. and I think there is merit to it. I just don't quite like it, it's not quite in my grasp yet. So talk a little bit about how journaling has helped you along your path. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to do that. First of all, I can completely relate to false starts over over the years. I would have it make attempts at, at keeping a journal. And it would inevitably, what I noticed is that as soon as life got interesting and worth journaling about, I'd be too busy to do it. I'd be like, oh, like who has time for that? I'm too involved in what it's I'm on doing. On the nose. The minute I get and busy then, is out. Yeah. And then I'd be like, damn, I wish I had journaled about that. That was so interesting. I wish I had documented it. So that was my experience of journaling growing up. But I, one thing that I did from a fairly early age was I always kept a notebook and a passion of mine, especially in my teens and 20s, was songwriting. So I always would keep a notebook to jot down ideas that I had. And my notebooks when I was a teenager would be a real just weird mixture of things. There would be some ideas for poems or song lyrics. But it would I would also document things like, I don't know, whatever I was into. If I got it to a musical artist, I would like catalog all of their albums and whatever. I just It was just a way to, it was just a space where I could write down whatever was top of mind and of interest to me or, or things that I wanted to explore further. Um, and then, like I said, I made attempts to keep more of a formal journal over the years, but they didn't, they tended not to last. And for me, the thing that made the difference where I actually locked it in as a practice and more or less a habit, huh, where to start with this? I reached a point where I was in my mid twenties and I had really crashed and burned. I had given everything to pursue this pursuit of a music career, which was my singular focus in life. I was determined, this is the one thing I love and care about more than anything. And specifically, when I say music, I wanted to be a singer songwriter. So I wanted to write my own songs, record them and go out and perform them. 
I was happy to do this solo on stage by myself with an acoustic guitar. And then I imagined that if I was able to make some headway, I might be able to hire some band members as well to accompany me. But this was my singular vision. And if you had told that guy, by the way, that he was ever going to do a triathlon or marathon, he would have said, <laughs> no, you're, you clearly are thinking of somebody else. But the very short version of this music journey story is that I reached a point in my mid-20s where I, had, I completely burned myself out. I exhausted myself in every way that you can imagine doing. So I exhausted myself physically, emotionally, creatively financially, you could say spiritually, I really had nothing left. I was just, the tank was empty. And I was really overwhelmed by a feeling of disappointment that I had given everything I had to give to this. And it's not that I didn't have successes, I did, but they were so incredibly small in proportion to what I was putting out. And I didn't expect that I was ever going to give up that pursuit because, again, it was the only thing that mattered to me. It was the thing that was my driving, my reason for being, right? But I reached a point where I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do it anymore. I, I didn't, I was, I could barely get out of bed. I was so depressed. This was a, what you might call a dark night of the soul kind of experience where it was the most painful thing I've been through so far as an adult, for sure. And I ended up going back at home. So I was living in Nashville where I was really aggressively pursuing this music career. And I, uh, for lack of, any, of a better idea, I took my mom up on her offer. She said, why don't you just come home? And under any normal circumstances, that would have been an utterly unacceptable option to me because it was the ultimate concession of defeat. But I, I felt I really didn't have a, a better choice. And so I did. And it was, man, I got to tell you, it was unbelievably painful. But the reason that I give you all that information is the, and how it connects to journaling was a musician friend of mine from Nashville recommended a book to me called The Artist's Way. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Julia Cameron is the author. And in The Artist's Way, she recommends doing a practice that she calls morning pages. It basically is a form of journaling, but it's a specific practice where she says, what you want to do is the first thing you do when you get up is you, you open up a notebook and you just fill three pages of whatever happens to be on your mind. Doesn't matter. The content is irrelevant. You're not trying to be a great writer. You're not trying to do anything other than just get your thoughts out of your head and onto the page. And then once you've filled three pages, you're done for the day, you move on with your day. And she encourages you to do this for what amounts to the 12-week duration of the program that she outlines in this book, The Artist's Way. Now, I was in a place in my life where I was in so much emotional pain and uh, really despair over what had happened with my music career and with not knowing what to do with myself, what to do next. And I was had just been dumped. And I, it was just like, it, just, it went from bad to worse to awful. And uh, so I was in a desperate state where I was looking for something, anything that might help. And so I, I was going through the artist's way and I did these, I followed this practice of doing morning pages. And clearly I felt like I got a lot out of it. I didn't get out of it what I wanted to get out of it. I did it. I had a motive for doing it. I thought that by doing it, it would help me resume my songwriting. I, I thought that it, it would help me reconnect with my songwriting. I was still attached to that identity 
that that like that was how I defined myself, and that was what made me worthwhile was the fact that I, I could do this thing, this music thing. And uh, it didn't really have that effect, but what it did was it helped me live more creatively. It didn't help me be creative in the specific way I, I hoped it would, but it allowed me to be open to things. And ultimately, that spirit of open-mindedness and curiosity and exploration is what led me to do so many different things I never, ever would have imagined at that time, not the least of which was an Ironman, because I basically adopted this practice of journaling, and I didn't necessarily adhere to her version of it or of doing it first thing in the morning. I would do it in whatever form, but I got so much value from doing it that it's, I don't know how to explain it, or I wish I could find a way to relate it to you, to someone who hasn't done this, but I'm sure there's a way to relate it from experience, how much something does for you. You get out, you get so much out of it that it's like a no brainer for you to do it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. I don't know what would be analogous for you that would fit that description. What do you think? <laughs> you're going to, you're going to mock me. You ready for this? Uh, yeah. Smoking cigars. Wow. Let's hear about that. You talked about something that's just a no brainer for me. I work a full-time job. So I work 40 to 50 hours a week. I was at work till, you know, four o'clock today at my normal job, came home, got the office ready, queued up everything and jumped on here with you. I get up at four o'clock every morning Wow! and I work either at my paid job or on my business until nine or 10 at night sometimes. The one exception to that is on set one day a week, I have cordoned off after my normal nine to five job. That's my daughter's time. It's blocked out on my calendar. No one can touch that. You saw my calendar when we were scheduling this. Wednesdays are blocked out forever. Those are my daughters. That is our time. Nothing else happens during that time. Nice. That way I make sure I don't miss everything with them while I'm trying to build a business and work full-time job. But I'm a all or nothing kind of guy. And so it's, <laughs> I think we have common too. <laughs> it, it's so easy for me to get so deep in that. I have to stop between certain things and go ask my wife if I need to do something, acknowledge something, talk to her about something, because I can literally go from one thing to the next. I don't ever run. In fact, people who get bored blow my mind because I don't ever run out of things to do. There isn't enough hours in the day. I'm also studying for a certification in personal training, nutrition, and behavioral change mm. while I'm doing my business, while I'm working full-time, while I'm trying to be a dad and a husband, while it just, it never ends for me. Smoking a cigar forces me because I won't waste a cigar. I won't waste, if I spend decent money on something, I won't waste it if at all possible. So getting just a normal I don't know what a normal size is, right? A full-size cigar, right? Five, six inches, whatever they are. If I light that cigar, I, A, I don't smoke in my house. So I go out on my back porch. I sit down in a lawn chair. If I light that cigar, nothing else is happening until I'm done with it. And so it forces me to, to be present, like actually to stop. stop. I'll talk to my kids while they're playing and we'll, my daughter will pull up a chair across, like I have a fire pit in my backyard. So we'll start a, a campfire or something and my daughter will pull up a chair and she'll talk to me. But once I start that, it forces me to stop, 
be in the moment, mm. take a break, and just be there. And because That's my head is so busy, I don't sleep well. I haven't slept well since before high school. And it's because I don't actually, like I've tried all the different sleep trackers. I average two minutes of REM sleep a night. Man, we have a lot in common. And <laughs> in, 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 for all the ways in which we're different, I, I can identify with that too. And yeah. it's because my brain never goes down enough. I hear everything in my sleep. Everything wakes me up. Yeah, in the I, same way. <laughs> I hear anything that moves on the street outside my house. I hear dogs if they're going through the alley behind my house. I hear my kids on the other end of the house that they rustle in their bed. Everything wakes me up because my brain just doesn't go far enough down. So taking that hour, because I don't know if you smoke cigars, but a, a good cigar, you're looking at an hour. Fascinating. Huh. And so it forces me. So I'll pour myself a bourbon and I'll, I'll sit down and I'll talk to my kids. I'll enjoy just sitting around the campfire, being outside in the clean air. And what I hear is it, it's stops. what helps you relax. It's like it, it gets you to, to be present and to stop, to get off the treadmill metaphorically right, and, and be present and just relax, which, which for people like you and me might be a really difficult thing to, to get ourselves yes. to do. So that's, I think that's absolutely fascinating. And yeah, it's like when you find a practice, whatever it is, some, whether some kind of routine or practice that, that you, that, that you find beneficial and it basically like never lets you down to, for me, that's what journaling, uh, does. And it, I could go on quite a lot about it. I have a blog post called The Value of Journaling, which is a good, fairly succinct way to take in my thoughts about what it is that, what the benefits are of doing it. But it is similar to what you were describing. It is an opportunity to momentarily shut everything else off. And if you're doing it in this day and age, you have to be really vigilant about making sure your phone isn't right there because... It's when I started journaling, I didn't have a cell phone, but now I realize because you'll, I'll be journaling about something and I'll go, Oh, I should look that up. And then my foot, and then I'm, Oh, <laughs> it's a mixed blessing. But the practice of journaling, what it does is it forces you to stop and check in. The way I think about it is I, I liken it to a relationship. Okay. In any relationship that you may have, let's say your relationship with your wife or a partner or a good friend, if you have a relationship and you never bother to ask the other person how they're doing and then actually really listen to, to, to their answer, to, the, to their response, or if they never provide that to you, that simple gesture to you, how good do you think, how, what do you think the quality of that relationship is going to be? Probably not very good. That's the fundamental thing is to check in with each other, see how you're doing, and be on top of each other in that sense of just being in sync with each other and knowing if the other person needs something, maybe, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help out in this way, or it's like a give and take, it's a dance. And so the way I think about journaling is that it's a way for you to keep in touch with yourself. Because for people like you and me, who are constantly doing and like exploring and thinking and like planning and all this stuff, to, to just take a breath and say, what, how am I doing? How, what, how do I feel about this? Because I've just been in go action mode, but how do I actually feel about this? Because is this right for me? I might just be going out of habit. I might be doing something mm -hmm. without stopping to ask myself, is this actually good? Is this helpful? Is this, how do I feel about it? Do I want to keep doing this? And so it's just a great way. And the thing about it is that you can, 
use it in any way that works for you. If having an assigned time of day, either at the very beginning of the day or at the end of the day is helpful, great. But you can, it doesn't have to be that way. You can do it in little five minute chunks that you might have in between tasks. And it's just a way to check in with yourself. And it, it, there's so many benefits to it. It helps you brainstorm ideas. It helps you get in touch with your feelings. It helps you just imagine possibilities that you might not have otherwise thought about. It helps you to follow through on things you want to do because the act of writing it down and putting it on paper somehow solidifies it instead of it just being this idea, oh, oh, it would be really nice if I called my friend Brent. Instead of it just being this idea that comes and goes and then you never act on it. If you put it down on paper, you're far more likely to act on it. So these are just some of the ways in which I find it immensely helpful and valuable. Now that, that part I understand because, so I have a, what you can't see in the camera is I've got a whiteboard that covers most of the wall on the other side of this room. And I have post-it notes everywhere because I know for me, there is power in taking what's in my head and writing down an idea. If I don't, that and my brain is so busy, I'm going to forget it anyway. So if I don't, write it down but if i actually write it down i got post notes all over my desk in front of me if i write down i know that i'm much more likely to do something with it or about it or pay attention to it and getting it out of my head and onto something else so i yeah it sounds like you have a good system too because not only are you writing it down but you're keeping it within eyesight like it's it stays on your radar because you have a system that where these reminders automatically happen. So yeah, yeah I, so that's that but that's one you know benefit of it. So there there are a lot of there are a lot of different ways in which journaling is helpful for me and there's a lot of different ways that you can also approach journaling. You can just do it stream of consciousness, let whatever comes out come out, but you can also use prompts you can also use it like to an- like you can ask yourself specific questions. Some people will ask themselves, for instance, what were three things that happened today that were great if they're journaling at the end of the day? And I, I asked my kids co- that out loud. What are three things you're grateful for? Yeah, but, but collecting this on mm-hmm. paper and just seeing these things accumulate, it can really rewire your whole outlook on life. I mean, that's in a nutshell journaling. But I'm a big I'm a big fan of whatever works for you. What works for me may or may not work for you. You won't know unless you give it a try and sometimes multiple tries, right? But I think that having a practice or even multiple practices of things that you do that are self-nourishing is invaluable. It's invaluable. It really is. It's an expression of... it's an expression of self-love but because you're taking care of yourself and you're you're giving yourself something that you need and that really restores you. And I, th- I see journaling as a way in which you can not only love yourself, but it shows it's a gesture of self-respect because you're saying, you know what, my thoughts and feelings are important enough for me to take the time to write them down. The way you would value, for instance, your kid and how she, you'll ask her questions because you genuinely want to know what happened to her that day and how she feels, right? It's, it comes naturally out of your love for her. And similarly, it's something that you can practice to give yourself that kind of love and respect and attention. Again, a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's easy to give that to others and not as easy to give it to yourself. So journaling is one way to do that. Okay. I got to break in here and guys, guys, if you're getting something out of this, be sure and do all the good social media stuff, like subscribe, share the content with your friends. And if you're on YouTube, be sure and hit the little bell icon. Uh, That way you get notified 
that's the only way you get notified every time we release a video. You can also join the mission or support us on Patreon or buy me a coffee. Our supporters have direct input on the content we create and produce and what we do here. We're going to roll to our sponsor and we'll be right back with more from Eric. All right, guys, we're back and we're talking with coach, creator, and jack of all trades, Eric Te Tepelitz. <laughs> I told you I would screw that up, Eric. About change, progress, and personal growth. But guys, we've gone in all kinds of directions on this. Eric just made the best argument case-wise for why journaling is a great thing, something I've never been able to do because it's not something I understand myself. And we got so much more coming out of this and more to go still. So stick around, enjoy the second second Enjoy the second half of the show, and we'll get back into it with Eric. Now, Eric, I got to ask, what's one thing you purchased in the last year under $100 that's had the most substantial impact on your life? I would probably say this microphone that I'm using right now. And I have been recently inspired. I've been appearing on podcasts, and I realized that the next right thing for me to do is to start a podcast of my own. And... As you no doubt know, there's a million decisions to make, and it can be completely overwhelming, especially for someone like myself that's not naturally a techie kind of guy. I bought this very microphone that I'm using and this new set of headphones that I love, actually. And each of those items was less than $100. But I'm going to especially emphasize the microphone because I know how important good quality audio is for podcasting, whether I'm appearing as a guest or doing one of my own. And so I anticipate that's going to be the most valuable $100 or less investment of mine for some quite some time to come. What model microphone did you get? It is a Samson. And let me see here. I want to say G G two U, but I'm not 100. percent Does that sound right? Ooh, yeah, it does. you could you could Google it. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. At, at the price range and the brand, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, Sally, because I am the techie guy, and I, I have multiple microphones sitting around me right now. I've gone through my fair share since I started in 2020, or yeah, in 2020, I've gone through. I think I have. I think seven different microphones at this point. I have my live show one, I have my podcast one, and I have my mobile video mics, and I've got a full array from shotgun mics to lapel mics and what you on screen. So I've done a lot of research myself in this topic, actually. It's always interesting to see what that first mic is somebody goes with. Hmm. And then once you're doing it a while, you start to find out it's like, okay, the way I do this most of the time, this is great, but I wonder if there's something better here or there. That's yeah, when start entry fishing. level, the same goes for so many things, right? Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned that I taught guitar for many years. And just like with a microphone, you want an entry level guitar that's going to be fully functional. And by now, fortunately, there are guitars that you can buy that are extremely reasonably priced. And they're perfect for beginners because they're accessible, they're easy to play. There's nothing worse than getting wanting to start a musical instrument and you buy something and it's just literally difficult to actually put your fingers on. You don't want that. And it, it, But then the, if you stick with it and you play for a while, you might decide, I'd really like... And there's a million different directions you can go in with guitars, as with microphones and anything else. <laughs> right. So I was reading through your blog and getting ready for the show. I, I read several of your blog articles. You're a good writer. Oh, thanks. Um, and the the problem with me is like my focus. Sometimes I, it is still like that squirrel. I see the headline, I read the first couple of paragraphs, and then I jump to the next one. I'm all over the place. But some of them really caught my mind. And one of the things you mentioned specifically in one of your blogs is 
environment is a strong is stronger than your discipline mm. and i read that and that just resonated so deeply with me because one of the things that's really hard when you're trying to improve yourself is to maybe move away from some of the people who are negative in your life or who are even for right the hardest one i think is people who like are really close to you who honestly love you and they're not trying to hold you back to hold you back they're holding you back out of their own fear for you falling short oh yeah uh, <laughs> and so that's something i've talked about before and would you share a little bit about the concept of your environment is stronger than your discipline because i'm a gym guy and that's one of the things they tell you in the gym is oh discipline when your motivation is run out discipline when your inspiration is rolled out discipline is what keeps you going it's like oh yeah, I'm happy to talk, to talk about that. First of all, discipline is a wonderful thing. I, you can't really argue with it. It's an invaluable muscle to build in, in any, because, and that was one of the great things about, for instance, training for a marathon. You, you, it's very much um, about self-discipline and self-discipline you can transfer to other endeavors. So if you, you know, build that muscle in one sense, you take that, you take the benefits of it with you in an, any other project or endeavor. So I, this is not in any way to diminish the value or importance of discipline and self-discipline. But what is the way I like to think about this is you, we are affected by our environment profoundly. And you can use the word environment in, in a lot of different ways. You can use it in terms of your immediate environment, the air that you're breathing, mm -hmm the room that you're in, okay, the people that you're with, that you're surrounding yourself with. And of course, even on a much larger scale, the environment in general, if, if we don't have clean air and to breathe in clean water to drink, that's going to have a profound effect on our health, right? This expression of an environment is stronger than discipline. I see it as a humility inspiring idea. I also see it as it, it might not be like capital T truth in every single situation. I do think that it is possible to overcome, for instance, peer pressure or external pressures. However, I think it's also really important to acknowledge the effect that our environment has on us. Think about it. Advertisers would not spend hundreds of millions of dollars if advertising didn't work. So whether you think you're immune to it, you think, ah, oh, I'm not, I'm not affected. It's, you are on some level affected by everything in your environment, even if you're not completely aware of it. It can be very subtle. And so an intelligent growth-oriented person understands this and accepts it. They don't try to resist it and say, ah, I'll just build my self-discipline even more and I'll be completely immune to any environmental influences. That's just not realistic because we're a certain kind of creature or a social animal and our environment, our social environments have profound effects on us. So the intelligent growth oriented person is aware of this, accepts it, and then uses that understanding to the best of their ability to be conscious about the environments that they create for themselves and put themselves in. Now, we can't always control our environment, but we definitely can make decisions to improve our environment, to improve our social circles, to improve our living spaces, and to help to make them make life easier for us so that we don't have to rely and fall back on this discipline so much. And there are many examples that that I can give, but that's the sum and substance of it. 
And, and I think also that you could even say that it takes discipline to help deliberately and consciously shape your environment to make it optimal for you. Yeah, stop tapping your mic. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it was slipping. That's what I'm... I, I did the same thing during an interview. And my guest was like, you got to stop touching your mic, man. <laughs> I was like, I'll let you let me know if it, if it, uh, I, I didn't even know I was, I, would, I didn't even know I was tapping it. It was like, yeah, yeah. I'll let you know if, or, I, mean, I'll, I will let, have you let me know if I need to adjust it. How about that? Yeah, no, you're good. As long as this, it's not going to fall on you, you know, your yeah. audio is fine. But like I said, I was doing it subconsciously. So that's why I said something's like, yeah, uh, no, yeah, no problem. I, I did that one day. And my guest was like, dude, you're tapping on your mic. <laughs> no, I'm not. I was tapping on a bass. I had it instead of using a boom arm, I actually had a stand in front of me. And I didn't realize I had my hands on the base of the stand. It was like tapping my finger. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so where to go from here? You did a piece on progress. I want to go from discipline and environment factors because I, I agree hundred percent. There is so much to be said for your immediate environment. Cleaning your house makes a difference in the way you feel about yourself. Wearing clean clothes makes a difference in the way you feel about yourself and the way you present yourself. I, I think people underestimate how greatly all those things, all those pieces of their environment impact the way they feel, the way they think, the way they perceive themselves. But as people work on that in progress, as they grow towards progress and go, okay, so I'm cleaning up my environment and I, I want to make progress and I want to make forward motion in something. You did a piece on progress and process. And the main takeaway I got was, it's nonlinear. And, and I want you to help us dispel the myth right now because so many people don't understand this concept of progress is not a linear path. We all have this, oh, I did this, so I should be here. And we, we're thinking on a straight line of how it should stack forward. With every step, I should be moving this direction. And it's, it's not that way, but you did a really good job in covering that in your blog. Mm -hmm. and think it ties in moving from environments to as we get that discipline, because we have to get that discipline to start moving forward in a positive direction anyway. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think it relates directly to the theme of your podcast, this fallible man idea. It, it can be discouraging if you're working towards something and you feel like I'm making forward progress, I'm making forward progress. And then, then all of a sudden you feel like you're sliding and you're slipping back and you go, oh, and I think again, the healthy attitude here is to whenever you're, um, taking anything on is to expect that to happen. And to, ex again, accept and understand that is part of it. That's part of the process of making progress is that it's not always going to be linear and always moving ahead in a, in a forward way. There's going to be an ebb and flow. This is a weird analogy that just came to my mind, so I'll use it. If you think of like a stock, if you follow a stock, stocks go up and down, sometimes profoundly. And even though the arc of something, take Apple as just a, an example, not that I follow this very closely, but I'm sure that over time, the direction of Apple's stock is very much upward moving, okay? Or pick any other well-known brand or blue chip stock as they call them. But if you if you focus in and look at it in a much more succinct period of time, or you like you, you'll see that it's not always going up that there are ups and downs, maybe the overall flow of it is a nice upward looking arc. But the more you zoom in, you'll see that it's that's not always what's happening. And so it's the same thing with any endeavor. 
I find it fascinating as well, experientially, practicing a musical instrument, building up endurance in a sport is you feel like I was making progress and now I'm slipping back. And why is that? And one of the reasons is that sometimes it takes your body and mind to catch up. It takes time to internalize the gains that you're making. That's why rest is built into any endurance program. You're not going to train seven days a week for a year most likely. You have to give your body time to internalize that those gains. You're breaking down your muscles so they can build back up. So that's if you understand that's part of the process, you're less likely to get discouraged when you feel like you're not making progress or as much progress as quickly as you hope you will. It's a long-term, it's thinking more long-term. And the other point that I just want to make about that is that if you want to make progress in some area of your life, as far as I'm concerned, you have to, to at least some extent, actually enjoy the process. So for instance, if you want to get really good at a musical instrument, if you're not having fun during the learning process, if you're not enjoying it, if it's just pure pain and torture, mm -hmm. you're probably not going to make much progress. But if you learned to actually get a kick out of it, then you can make extraordinary progress because you have more patience for it. And you actually enjoy, it's fascinating to see, wow, like I couldn't do this an hour ago and now I can. And, or on the other side of it, why is it that I, you know, I've hit a plateau and even though I've been repeating this and working on it for weeks and weeks, I'm, I'm not getting any better. I'm not, there's still this one part that's tripping me up and that's what'll keep happening. And then one day, but without you even realizing it, you'll wake up and then you've got it. So it's, it's, it's a mystery. It's the way our brains work. It's a mystery. But you have to, I think, you have to acquiesce to the, you have to surrender to the process and trust the process that if you show up on a regular basis, you're going to have good days and bad days, but you will make progress. So that, that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> in, in the gym, we tell people, you, you don't go to the gym to build muscle. You go to the gym to tear up your muscle. You build muscle in your sleep. Right? Exactly. It's about what you right. eat and the rest. You have to tear up the muscle, then feed it so it has, you know, something to grow on, and then that's where it grows. So I get that it's entirely. One thing, it, yeah, it's one thing to talk about this, but to actually experience it. If you have an actual experience of it, mm -hmm. you get it. You're like, wow, amazing. <laughs> and, and then I have the people I work with at the gym who once I convince them that that works. They're like, so I should just thrash myself in the gym. No, <laughs> right, there, there's right. a point of diminishing returns, man. It's, yeah, right. And, and I, I actually appreciated your example. As a shareholder in Apple, I, I can absolutely oh, test right? that's the way it works. Yeah, so, and you have to be willing to you have to be willing to endure those dips and think with a long term kind of mindset. It's funny because I've talked about this before on the show. My wife does our finances, like she does our budget and stuff like that. She's way better at that kind of organizational organization that I am. I'm those little checkout aisles were made for me. I'm an impulse guy. Those were impulse aisles were made for me. And so my wife does our books and stuff like that. And mine's our budget. I do all of our invest because while she's good at planning that this doesn't shake me up. And my wife watches our investments do this. And it's like, I no, baby, you, you can't watch, you, you can't watch the stock market daily without losing your mind or having. Absolutely. Of steel. I, I love also 
Brent, that example, because that to me is what partnership is all about. It's bringing to the table your strengths and deferring to your partner's strengths and and being a team and realizing, look, this comes easier to me. I'm going to take this responsibility or whatever. But you have the same goal. You're working towards the same things, but you bring your individual strengths to the table and you allow the other person to do the same. I think that is beautiful. And I can speak from my own experience with my wife that similarly, like we just figure out where each of us is strong. And it's not to say like that I can't improve at something or mm-hmm. and work on something, but it's one of the beautiful things about a relationship when it's that that's working is that you almost instinctively do these things and you you leave it to, to them to do well, one it's, thing. It's a and partnership, you, right? Yeah, it's a partnership. I have strengths, you have strengths. Hopefully in that if you plan that partnership well, if you chose well, those strengths and weaknesses kind of balance each other a little bit and uh, uh, make and compl- for a better, bigger picture together. You're still two individuals. You're just joined towards a common goal, which is your marriage. So I agree with that entirely. You, you did a piece and I wrote it down because I think it was in 2011. Mm-hmm. And he said it was five suggestions for instantly making the world a better place. You know, oh, yeah, five things <laughs> specifically. Yeah. And I, so I wrote down those five things. It was give blood, donate monthly, volunteer, be kind and get happy, which I think are all spectacular. I think it's great advice. Now, what I want is for you to give me three things, three action things that our listeners can take today, take away from this interview today. And start doing right now in their lives, start moving in a more positive directions for themselves. Hmm. Because wow. those, those things are great, but you concisely broke down those five. And I know I'm putting yep. you on the spot. No, it's fine. The first thing that I would say is actually, I'm going to use one of those five, and that's the be kind, but I'm going to modify it and add to that be kind to yourself. And this can take practice. This doesn't necessarily come easily. It, it, it might, but it might not. But I feel like the more able we are to be kind to ourselves, the more easily we'll be able to not just be kind to others, but the more available we'll be for others. And for people that are, I guess you could say, I don't know, type A or for who are just very ambitious or like Brent to go do and just keep taking on more and more that there's nothing wrong with that. I think that ambition is a wonderful thing, but the kindness and the the self-kindness and the not beating yourself up, I think is, is about the best thing that you can do for yourself is to, if you're, it, maybe this is not an issue depending on who's listening. Maybe you don't do this, but I know a lot of us do, and I certainly did, and I've gotten a lot better at at not doing it as much. I've really toned it down quite a lot, and it's made such a difference in in just my ability to be in the world, to be comfortable with myself and who I am. It makes everything else easier. So that would be one thing I would say is be kind to yourself and figure out what that means to you. It might mean I'm going to, after hearing that Eric guy talk about journaling, I'm going to give that a shot, try it for a week and see how I feel about it. And just by having that willingness to try it, I think you're already doing it. You're already being kind to yourself by allowing to yourself to explore something. And it's way healthier for you than my choice. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to judge you for it because it, you're clearly getting benefits out of it. And I agree. I wouldn't encourage anybody. Yeah. I smoked for years. I gave up cigarettes. I still enjoy yeah. my cigars, but it's yeah. 
journaling, journaling is a way healthier option, guys. Just. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways in which you can do this. But even if it's just, I love what you said about how you devote, you carve out time on your calendar on Wednesdays. And that is for your daughter, that that time is reserved and spoken for. And that is like, that's your way of insisting that you get to live that value of yours and that priority of yours. I love that. I think that's a beautiful example. And we can do that in, we can do that with anything. It's if you don't insist on the time for something, and if you leave it to the whims of the world and and your daily, like, good luck. It's gone. It's (laughs) gone. Yeah. So I said, so be kind. And you wanted, these were immediately actionable things people can do to improve themselves. Yes, sir. I would say, even if you're, even if you don't want to adopt the practice of journaling, taking the time, however much time you need to do this to do some deep thinking instead of just, we spend most of our lives on autopilot. And that's, by the way, that's not a bad thing entirely. It's an extremely helpful thing. It's the way that our brain allows us to function effectively in the world is that we learn something, we internalize it, we do it habitually. We don't have to use all of our conscious attention every time we get in the car. How do I drive again? No, it's all internalized. So the fact that we're on autopilot is a very great and helpful thing. But if you're on autopilot doing something that's actually not beneficial to you, that isn't something that is a worthwhile use of yourself in the world, then I think it's great to take a a certain amount of time. It could be an hour, it could be a weekend, whatever it is, and just spend time with yourself figuring out what for you right now, what are your top priorities in life? Now, these can change. These naturally will change as we move through life. Your priorities as a single person might be different than your priorities as a married person. Your priorities as someone in your 20s might be different, undoubtedly will be probably most likely different than your priorities in your 40s. But we don't necessarily take the time to consciously examine and explore these things. The famous Socrates quote, the unexamined life isn't worth living. I think that's an extreme statement, but there is definitely some um, validity to the idea that if you want to live your best life, then it requires on some regular basis, even if it's just once a year, to sit down and really deeply think about what is most important to you and how can you create new habits that are more closely aligned to that. Maybe everything you're doing is fine, Mm -hmm. but most likely there's always room for improvement. Hence the fallible man, the fallible woman, we're human. And so I think that taking some time out to really examine what your values, what your priorities are and what you want them to be. And then you figure out what the next step is, what the action step is for the new habit to build. Maybe you want to get rid of a habit that's no longer serving you. And maybe you want to install a new habit that will serve you. So that would be the second thing I would suggest. And then the third thing that I'm just going with what immediately comes to my mind is to take in content. This has to do with environment again, about take in content, whether it's Brent's podcast, hopefully it is, or anything else that you find nourishing, that you find inspiring. Be deliberate. The news is always on 24-7. The news can, the news... I'm not saying that you should not have any awareness of what's going on in the world, but watching, monitoring your news diet, I think is essential to your health and well-being. And so instead of just like defaulting to whatever's on the news or whatever's on TV, make a point of being deliberate about taking in content 
that's going to actually nourish you and uplift you and help you instead of content that's just going to make you fall into the pit of despair. Because the news is designed, the news is designed to get your attention. And what gets your attention? Things that are horrible. (laughs) It's a surefire way to get someone's attention. So yeah, be deliberate about not just your diet of food, but your diet of intake of content and make sure that it's content that is going to benefit you. Healthy content. And it it can still taste great. We we actually talk about that a lot on The Fellow Man. Diet is more than just the food you put in your body. Social media and news just are, can be so soul crushing. That's We're right. seeing more and more studies about the impacts of social media, especially on younger minds. And so, yeah, now I, I think those are great. What is next for Eric Teplitz? What's next for me is I'm starting a podcast of my own and it's going to be called The Person You Want to Be. And I'm going to be interviewing people who will share their life stories and their insights and journeys and unexpected twists and turns and and aspirations. The thing I love about the name of the show, the person you want to be, is that it's aspirational. And there's always, it's never, the story is never over as long as we're breathing. So who do you want to be now? Who do you want to be next who is the person you're aspiring to be and what are you doing about it? That's what's next for me is starting this podcast. This has been the Fallible Man Podcast, your home for everything man, husband, and father. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a show. Head over to www.thefallibleman.com for more content and get your own Fallible Man gear.